Good morning, and welcome to episode 686 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hello. And we are joined for the first time in a couple hundred episodes by BP's Director of Technology, Harry Pavlidis. Hello, Harry. Hello. So we talk about catcher stats on this podcast, or I talk about catcher stats, and Sam listens sometimes. And so you have been one of the driving forces behind all the new catcher stats that we've gotten to play with over the last couple years, and you have a new one this week, and it is kind of the... I don't know. Maybe it's the maybe it's the last piece of the puzzle. Maybe it's not. We can talk about that. But you wrote something for ESPN the magazine this week about game calling, and you came up with a game calling stat, and you rated game calling. And this has kind of been the final frontier for catcher stats. We've had framing, we've had throwing, we've had fielding batted balls, but we have been missing this game calling element, which pitchers and catchers tell you is very important and now we have numbers so tell us how we have these numbers how did you put a number on game calling and what does it mean exactly what does game calling encompass these final frontiers are frightening Mm -hmm. so because there's a lot of unknowns so we the, the process really started oh gosh about a year ago when i did a piece with espn about framing and we we talked about what was going to be next. And I said, we, we hope by sometime early in this season, 2015, that we would have something on game calling. And it turned out that it wasn't quite so early. But what, what happened was it was kind of a side effect of DRA, which as you, as we produce DRA, there's a core calculation that we figure out the value of a, you know, expected versus actual outcome of each plate appearance. I should say that context. is. Deserved run average with yes. the new BP pitching stat, which you can hear Jonathan Judge talk about on a recent episode of Effectively Wild. Okay, continue. I was going to put that plug in, but that's good. <laughs> that's very right. good. So the what we it was pointed out to me during the project that like, hey, by the way, we can do something with that. I'm like, well, we'll let's do it. Uh, so we took it. Uh, so Judge and uh, I guess Dan Turkoff, as well as Greg Matthews and Rob Arthur and Rob McEwen and all those guys, they, they said, here, use this, you know, this, this will actually produce useful data on catchers. And I took that and it did a little bit of work, but it was really pretty much everything there needed to be based on all the, the accumulated work from DRA to come up with a first calculation of what the catcher added beyond what else he was doing and that we knew about. So all these contextual controls, we kind of turn around and at the end take a quick detour. And instead of calculating DRA, we instead of going through all those final steps and complexities there, we kind of stop and say, what, what's, what's the value here? So once you do that, we, we start to go, well, what is this, you know, what is this actually measuring? You know, that's, you know, what are the skills and the attributes is really the second part. And that, that's where the thing with the ESPN was helpful because they got me access to a catcher mm-hmm. uh, and then they poked and prodded me to act like a journalist and talk to some of my industry connections about it and discovered quite a few things about what we're measuring, what we may not be measuring, what we think we're measuring, and it's quite a learning experience. Okay, so if I can take a stab at summarizing what this is telling us. This is essentially 
this is the remaining gray area after we have this is like you know you calculate how much dark matter is in the universe because yes. you you know how much dark non-dark matter. matter exists and you know how much matter exists and so the rest of it is just dark matter and so this is like the dark matter that was remaining for catchers after accounting for everything else so framing and batted balls and run saved and everything so you can you look at pitchers what was their impact yeah what was their impact on batter events outside of ability to frame and block Mm -hmm. the pitcher and then all the things yeah exactly so it is it is dark matter there's no doubt and and that's been one of my one of my laments about anything i've ever heard about game calling ngl you know mitchell lickman the great you know sabermetrician from the book Mm -hmm. co-author tango and dolphin and of course max marshy who is now with the indians but formerly a baseball prospectus who really was one of the real leaders in these things. And he was one of the first people to say, oh, and by the way, game calling, you know, AJ Krasinski is a monster. It sounds much better if Max's accent. But, you know, <laughs> the notion is that you could, he, he calculated these things and, and, and MGL, they both have said it's pretty much what's left over. Yeah. And so we said, okay, that, that's a start. So Brooks, Dan Brooks and I, we started talking about what, well, what could be, what are the components of game calling? Sequencing. Is one thing, you know, you can maybe see do these guys call pitches differently. Do they make different selections at different times? Are there other skills? Are there other attributes of their game impacting their pitch selection? So they may not call a slider when it's optimal. Like, hey, you can get this guy out because he'll expand the zone for a slider, but I'm not going to throw because I'm scared it's going to be in the dirt and go past you. So the catcher doesn't call it or the pitcher shakes it off or, you know, something, you know, you don't get the, so you end up throwing a fastball and in a non-fastball situation or pacing, you know, if these guys can't get on the same page, they're not going to go as fast. And I'm going to say that again, pacing (laughs) uh, is something. So then what makes a catcher good at it was something, you know, can they read swings so they can they look for identify the holes in a batter swing and how they're reacting within a game, how much do they prepare watching video? Those are the kind of things we thought, like, okay, what what are the things we can measure? But when we found we kind of found a sophisticated way to measure dark matter, I kind of was like, okay, this is actually pretty good. And you know, then the next thing is to go take that that finding, take those dark matter numbers and and say, well, what is it in here? And we haven't really embarked on the on the fun research, but in talking to folks, we uh, it was surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, some of the things that I figured it would be important are, but it's more about just letting the pitcher execute and letting the catcher worry about the sequence. Mm-hmm. And and that's really the Dodgers philosophy, according to A.J. Ellis, who I spoke to for ESPN. And A.J. I spoke to because over the past three years, he has the most value as a game caller. Mm hmm. And so uh, the the magnitude of it, can you tell the, the total impact of a catcher just by looking at how different combinations of pitchers do with different combinations of catchers? And you That's basically see, how it works. Right. Yeah. And so that you see that catchers have a certain amount of impact and you can tell how much of that impact comes from throwing or framing or whatever. And you know that that doesn't account for the entire difference. And so there is some leftover amount. And what is the leftover amount? What is the the range of game calling? What's a good game caller worth? 10 to 15 runs of game calling value would be a lot above average. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know, a, a one to two win at the extreme range skill, while framing can be much, much larger. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it, it, it's a big skill. It's important. It comes out very well in our measurements, but framing comes out 
much, much larger. Does that surprise you at all? Because I, if, you know, if 10 years ago we had, you had told me that you had figured out how much all of these component skills were worth and that one of them was worth a ton and another one was worth a little less, I would have guessed that game calling would have been worth more. Just because it seems like what we think of as game calling a lot of times is basically the ability to turn a not very good pitcher into a better pitcher. And that just seems like... I'm not completely convinced framing and game calling are really distinct, although we do find that they vary separately. People, So players who are consistently good at framing may have good and bad game calling seasons, which is a little bit strange, but it seems to move independently of framing. You have guys who are just consistently bad at one, but good at the other. So there's a pretty, I feel pretty comfortable, at least in the pitch FX era, that when we have framing calculated that way, that we've distinguished it. In the, in the retro sheet, the pre-2008 era, where we had pitch by pitch data, but not location, it's, I think, much different, where I think it's really polluted. So we're also, one thing that considers we're in the framing golden age. I think we're pretty much seeing peak value would be my guess. And so it may have had a larger impact in the past. So one of the things we want to try and figure out is if we can suss out why, where the differences are using present day versions of retro sheet data to compare, you know, okay, we have differences in framing. Are they explained by game calling between the two systems and try and figure out how we can try and maybe tune the older data and try and see if the impact was larger in the past. But presently, in the past few years, while it's been the golden age of framing and we can best, I think, distinguish framing from game calling, it seems much smaller. Now, for some catchers, it's going to be bigger than anything else because they may be about average here or there. So for a guy like AJ Ellis, it pulls him from being, you know, if he could hit over 200 would help, but it, he, it pulls him from being a bad catcher to being a good one. I mean, he's not a good framer. He's not, he's okay. He's pretty good, I guess, you know, above average or average at throwing, but it's his game calling skills that actually make him a plus behind the plate overall. So for some guys, it can make a difference. So he's one of the guys who gets the most value from it in our current measure. It's pretty surprising, except for when you consider that Clayton Kershaw loves pitching to him. And it's not just because he's catching Clayton catching Clayton Kershaw. That's tough to say. It's not just because he's catching Clayton Kershaw that he's excelling at this. Yeah, that was going to be my my next question because it you know it makes total sense that it would be AJ Ellis at the top of this leaderboard because you'd think that he must be doing something well because these guys like pitching to him and he doesn't frame and he doesn't really hit so it has to be something and maybe this is that something it exactly and that's why it became the hook for the story because it's like geez this is a guy who i have you know published statistics that have maligned him Mm -hmm. it was great to talk to him about that because he laughed and said i'm aware of that and it's great because it changed my focus i I now concentrate on framing a pitch and i was like what do you mean he says you should just react so I'd be very, very focused on what pitch to call and making that decision and thinking ahead. And, and, you know, so all those mental things that he had to do to decide what pitch to call, you know, and hint, that's why it's so hard to measure. It's so complicated. Uh, but then, you know, he would just react to the pitch coming in. And then when we started publishing leaderboards where it's like he's minus 15 runs a season or something framing, he said he started concentrating. And he started actually having his brain more engaged throughout the pitch. So it was a fascinating thing. So this is, I mean, pretty amazing where the guy's like, it's good to be, have these things measured as he put it called, you know, he said it's called measuring the unmeasurable. He says it's very good because it puts a value on these things, but also because it made him more aware of the importance of it. 
Although in his case, framing-wise, it hasn't seemed to change the numbers. There are, there are some guys who, you know, like Chris Iannetta this year had that same kind of epiphany, and now suddenly he's gone from the bottom of the leaderboards to the top of the leaderboards in one off-season or spring training of working on this stuff, whereas Ellis is still in the red. Well, he is still in the red, mm-hmm. but you know, one could posit that with leg injuries, as he's had, he's maybe resisted some of the decline that we, we seem to see with guys. We said there's a strong reason to believe, and it's something that we want to probably get through this offseason to measure, is look at as guys get hurt, how their framing goes. It seems to be, there seems to be something there where as the lower body goes, that seems to be a big part of the aging process, and that seems to make it harder to frame. So maybe you're not getting as low, maybe you're not as stable. But anyway, so guys like that, you know, I always kind of say, yeah, it's okay, maybe he's hurt. Everybody's getting better also, it seems, they're cutting off the lower end. Mm-hmm. But whether or not it's coming out of the numbers, he's found it important because it, he, it keeps him more mentally engaged. And, I, that, and that is, you know, that's a little scary. So, so. <laughs> I mean, the, so the knee-jerk critique to this would be, of course, A.J. Ellis shows up as a good game caller he's catching Clayton Kershaw and he's catching Zach Greinke and you know I'm catching the rest of their staff and he's catching their goal yes that too but so that's it's all there and, it, and they throw to other catchers right so yeah I mean you're familiar with that critique I you know every time I've ever written about yeah. catcher defense I hear that too so what is the response to that it's that he's we've done everything in our power at this point to control for that and and the methods we've used have been proven reliable in other areas so AJ measures well year after year. Most guys do. The correlation year to year in the me- metric we're using is higher for catchers than it is for pitchers. So it's not a bad number. So it's not a pure clean metric. So the who's on his staff, I think we do a plenty good job of controlling for that. We're always, as you guys probably know, and stuff I've talked to you guys before about is we're always looking for better ways to do that. And that's why we got into some of the things with DRA and our newer framing model with called strikes above average CSAA or CISA uh, that really focus on those things. So I, I feel comfortable with our measurement of that black matter. I realize that we have the good thing is it doesn't just AJ Ellis, who's like his pitchers are told us, but Yachty tends to come out good over multiple years. He's always at the top, but in some years he seems to drop for some reason. And I'll kind of want to talk about some of my thinking on that for in a minute, but it, it tends to align with reality. It tends to align with who we've heard about and, and the, and the range of it is what we expected to find. Uh, so to me, it is easily the most questionable thing that we measure in all the things that we publish and do. Mm-hmm. But it's not the, well, he pitched with, he caught with that staff. That's not, that's not what concerns me. Mm-hmm. Concerns me is not every catcher calls pitches. There are teams then, this is what I learned doing the, you know, research process and getting, you know, nobody would go on the record about this stuff. But what I learned talking to three different executives, front office, you know, leaders that there are teams in baseball that a hundred percent of the pitches are called from the bench. Major League Baseball. So I, I didn't know that. So, 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 so Harry, do you, if you know those teams, do you, when you look at their catchers, do they? I don't know who they are. I, honest to God, don't know who they are. I wish I did. Because if we knew who those teams were, and it shouldn't be that hard to figure out, they're going to be looking in at the dugout even when there's not a runner on base, right? I mean, as it is, the catcher looks in at the dugout because the base runner, the, the running game is often called from the dugout. But yeah, but what if it's the guy with the flashlight in center field? <laughs> no, you're right. You would probably so, look. You know, or they're, you know, that's probably, 
probably the case, yeah. So if we, let's say we figured out those three teams and then we looked at their catchers and they still had big spreads in pitch calling or pitch whatever we're calling. Yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah game value is like the best way to call because it's not just calling. And this is what Ellis kind of explained to me, what the other executives told me as well. It's not just what pitch they're asking for. Yeah, we know these guys have to do a lot of things. So, like, I know what you're going to ask is that these guys might still be a difference. Yeah, the two guys on the so you may have Caleb Joseph and what is it, Nick Hundley's the other guy on the Orioles? Is he still on the Orioles? No, he's on the Rockies. Yeah, but he was before, right? He was, yeah. Yeah, so there's a big difference between those two guys. And let's say we find out that you know, Buck's calling most of the pitches, all the pitches, something. So, so okay, there's still a difference even if we control for that. Yeah, they're on the same team. But what is it? It's like, well, it's the comfort level. There's something about these guys don't like pitching to me or they like pitching to him. It's real. So Ellis told me that the trust and communication, I said, what is game calling? What, what, what is that makes you good at game calling? And that, that question may sound familiar to Ben. Uh, <laughs> and he said trust and communication. And I was, I was expecting it to be some more baseball kung fu, but it wasn't. It was totally soft. It was absolutely like so. It was about, you know, we might go fishing and get to know each other and build that rapport he talked a lot about how vested he is in the pitcher's success and that, you know, that they know that he goes and puts in the work and that when he makes a call, it's with the pitcher's best interest in mind based on his level of preparation and decision making. And some pitchers, as he told me, it's totally different. Kershaw dictates what he the game plan is going to be for your game. Like they go through the same process of video meeting with Honeycutt and then Clayton says, here's how we're going to go about it. And that's it. Clayton doesn't want to talk until after the game. That's the end of the conversations with them. The rest of the game is AJ diverging from the plan constantly. He's like, it's mad scientist out there is his words during the game. Now you don't experiment in all situations at all times with all pitchers, but he's like, you're, you're trying different things. You're saving things for later. You're figuring out what to do and how to do it. But so you constantly diverging from the plan, but the pitcher has to trust you. And Kershaw doesn't want to hear about it or talk about it. He'll just let him go. Granky is the polar opposite for that guy. It's a nonstop conversation between innings, during innings, during at bats where Granky is constantly saying, discussing what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it which isn't totally surprising based on how we know Zach likes to work in a very uh, cerebral way where he even, you know, go, will go to the dugout, look at pitch FX data and, and adjust his grips and his technique in game. So there's that whole range that Ellis has to deal with. And the reason he deals with it well is because he commits himself to their success. And it was an incredible, but of course there's the fundamentals of baseball. And he said Brad Osmus taught him a lot of the preparation steps and the checklist he has came from Osmus. And it's like, this is what you do before the game is how you get ready. And on the day I talked to him, he had just spent 90 minutes going through Diamondbacks video before just out, eat the whole lineup. So he had, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of video on every guy in their lineup where he's in at-bats. That's a lot of, if you think about just watching condensed pitch after pitch stuff and, and, and paying, that's a lot of focus, a lot of mental energy being put into it. And then during the game, he's talking to his pitching coach. So a lot of it is directed by, you know, the pitcher. A lot of it is directed by the pitching coach who, in Honeycutt's case, he goes down looks at video and will make, you know, directional changes, you know, on the game plan during the game that way. Some teams are signaling from the bench. Ellis is calling his own game. The only thing that I've seen him get signs for was, uh, you know, if they want him to throw behind the runner or or potentially walk a guy, he, he'll check those things, like you said, with runners on base. 
but he calls everything himself. So they're one of those. Every team I talked to said the same thing. It's a soft skill. If the catcher's not good at it, we'll give him more and more pointers. If he doesn't adopt those pointers, we'll just start calling the game from the bench. So it's really like, I'm like, what are we measuring here? And that's really the biggest thing here is what are we measuring? And then there's the whole, you know, massive luck factor. You think Babbitt's a problem for pitchers. <laughs> it's a little harder for catchers too. But they have a role in that. They actually have a role in how all these things play out. And it's buried in a lot of noise, but we found a pretty good signal. And now we want to tar- start looking for the covariates. What are the things that go with it? Because one of the things that I said, okay, so I, so after this whole conversation about psychology and soft skills with AJ Ellis, I was like, so I'm like, hey man, like how do I like measure this and stuff? <laughs> and he's like, uh, pacing. I'm like, oh, bless your heart, man. I'm like, I'm like, good because he's like, it, you, you'll see it there. He's like, and big innings also. He's like, he, his prediction is that good game callers will not have as many innings reel out of control or have the pitcher get ripped out. Like, basically, if a guy managed to get four innings out of his starter instead of one and two-thirds, just by calming him down and getting to say, just, you know, you've given up seven runs. But it's cool. Remember that time in Boca when we were fishing? And, you know, <laughs> so that was awesome. It's probably so, not going to be as simple as looking and saying he calls more two-seamers than this other catcher, or he I calls more said, inside yeah, pitches absolutely. or something like that. You, you, I think you yourself have published things about, you know, one Yachty calling more right. like back-to-backs. Yeah. Uh, I think there was something, I forget which pitcher, but I think wasn't Posada like not calling sinkers for somebody or something like that. Mm. You will find that. I think well, I, I found something where I was working at uh, Kurt Suzuki when he was with the Nationals, when I was working for the Washington Post for a while, we, I noticed that he was calling an inordinate amount of fastballs where Ramos and the other catchers at the time, there was a lot of different guys catching with the team at that time, so it made it interesting to measure, that were calling breaking pitches. These guys had always thrown breaking pitches. And in particular, I'm talking about Gio Gonzalez and Steven Strasburg. And, and the thinking was, you know, I talked to, you know, you know Wagner and Kilgore. Um, who were both the beat writers at the time for the Post, Adam Wagner and... Um, Adam Kilgore, James yeah, Wagner. James Wagner, Adam Kilgore. I knew I had it wrong. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds totally backwards. <laughs> so they were like, oh, yeah, those are the guys who don't hold the runners on. I'm like, Gio doesn't hold runners on? He's a lefty. He's like, yeah, but he doesn't pay any attention. So they're like, and Suzuki doesn't have a good arm, so I'm like, maybe he's cheating. So I think he was like traded back to Oakland shortly after that, so we never got to ask him. <laughs> that might have been a tough question to ask him. But he was a guy, by the way, pitchers love him. Bad framer, not a great thrower. Pitchers love him. Comes out well on our Yeah, manager. and there are other guys like that on this list. I'll I'll link to this article at BP in the blog post and also in the Facebook group, but you can see the leaderboard there. And there are guys there like Przinski, who you mentioned already, and Sal Perez, who are oh, you know, yeah. widely regarded Honestly. as great defensive catchers or at least have endured love, as love catchers. Yeah, yes. and, and have not rated well framing-wise, so... This sort of explains that this this article is only positive. It only gives us the good good game callers. Can you tell us anything about bad game callers? Sure. <laughs> we want to go negative here. All right. This is wait before I, you... I didn't realize I was doing the Jerry Springer show. Jerry. <laughs> Let me pull up my report for last year and tell you. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. Before you before you get to the negatives, I just need to know if Jeff Mathis' reputation is is uh, assisted further. I don't know. Maybe he'll be a negative. I need to know. We'll find out. 
Yeah, please. So last year, the top guys by accumulation. So uh, it was Sal led with, I got 11 runs, I think, in this, this I'm looking at right here. So Sal, Deonor Navarro, Yachty, AJ, Salto Maki, who end up flipping down at the bottom. Sometimes guys flip. It's kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek Norris up there, he flipped again. Okay, guys were at the bottom last year. It was like Darno, mm-hmm. Torinos, Montero, Zunino was down low, Castro. Mm-hmm. Jason Castro, Will and Rosario, Tyler Flowers, AJ Przinsky, he's up and down all the time. Hmm. Posey and Lucroy tend to always be bad. Hmm. Like a few runs negative every year. They're just not that, you know, they just, but again, it can change, you know, for some of these guys over the course of a year or two. So some of these guys stay consistent. Like Alex Avila is usually really good. Uh, but yeah, Lucroy's been generally pretty bad. Miguel Montero was generally pretty bad, but that was with Arizona. I think he's, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have good numbers for 2015 yet, but he was doing, he's doing pretty well based on what I could tell. It's hard to tell really what the, the rain, everybody's squashed together this early in the season. Yeah. Well, I mean, if certain teams call. Exactly. So, that, yeah. <laughs> or knows? pitchers just don't want to go with the plan. Maybe get right. a stack for guys. Maybe, you know, one thing I, I haven't controlled for is like, you know, maybe just, just look at starting pitchers and relief pitchers separately because, you know, one is much more planning and management. The other one is much more reactive and situational. And maybe it's a f- completely different world to measure. So maybe we need to look at those things as well. Mm-hmm. So, so do you have historic stats for Jeff Mathis to make Sam happy? When, when was his last year? He's yeah. still active. <laughs> he's not making much of an impression these days. Yeah, he's still he's been with the Marlin, uh, with the Marlins for the last three years. He caught 64 games last year, 73 the year before. He catches 60 or 70 games every year since 2006. Oh, let's see. Yeah, he's not, yeah, you're right. He is playing. Good for him. That's that's fantastic. That he's, <laughs> it's really always happy for people to be playing baseball. All right. So let's see. What a lengthy and impressive career. Okay, this year, like I said, I have no idea. Uh, up and down, mostly up. So, and then, you know, he would probably be middle to top, you know, Top quarter of the league, probably most years. He's had a, had a couple years where he ended up kind of low, okay. but when he was his lows weren't that low. Like his low years were negative one run. His normal years were then all his other years. He had three years. This is going back to 2008. He had one, two, basically three runs, eight runs, three runs, three runs, negative one, eight, negative one. So right. for the most part, so this improves uh, Mathis's case. All right, wait, natural follow up. I need historical for Mike Napoli. <laughs> Like, wow, first baseman's game calling impact. <laughs> that would, yeah, that'd probably have to be pre-pitch FX mostly, or no, I guess. No, no, we have not. 2008 through 2012. Yeah. yeah, 8, 9, 10 is the years I want. So he's one of these guys who had, was like whipsaw, hmm. uh, like really bad two years and then really good one year. Which which years was he? Which year was he good? All right, so 2008, he was pretty much dead average. 2009 and 10, bad. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those are the three years. All right, Sosha. <laughs> and then, and then, okay, okay. And then 2011, really good. So from 2000, like, really, like he flipped like 20, yeah. 30 runs one year to year. That's insane. So it makes all right. Look- new staff though. So I mean, new staff. Mike Sosha can't be blamed for whatever good he did in Texas. All right. So from 2008, can you add up from 2008 to 2010, Napoli and Mathis? Okay. You want to know the answer? Yes. I- I do. That's specifically three. It's, a big, three it's a big difference. They caught a pretty much equal number of at bats. I got we have Mathis at just under eighty five hundred and Napoli at eighty three fifty. So fifteen runs for Mr. Mathis, negative thirty three for Mike Napoli. <laughs> Oof. 
Sasha uh, looks smarter every time someone every, does something with every, catcher defense. Every day. Every day gets a little <laughs> bit smarter. Um, okay, so what does all of this, now that you've put numbers on all of these things and you've either added them to wins above replacement or you soon will be, what does this do to catchers relative to other positions? Is a is Not a much. top defensive catcher who can also hit the leading MVP candidate? Well, in always. A, in a that year? was already the case thanks to framing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Posey and Lou Croy and Molina have, have had you know MVP caliber seasons. Coming up in your 2015 All-Star Game program, you can see who the most valuable players have been over the past few years combined, thanks mm-hmm. to Baseball Prospectus. So the guys like Posey is definitely always a perennial guy. Lucroy as well. They both seem to lose value from game calling though. So it doesn't seem to help them. The, the best guys like Sal Perez, you know, he's a bad framer. So he's kind of capturing, recapturing some of that. You know, Alex Avila is kind of, you know, I don't think it's going to turn him into an MVP candidate, even though he's had some really good years. So there's, I'm going to say not anymore because it maybe makes a difference at how we look at certain guys and maybe how certain rankings sort out in the end. But I think it's framing, which has really been the thing that makes the catchers the top value. Mm-hmm. And you three out of like three out of the top 10 guys in baseball are probably catchers, even though nobody would think of that. Maybe it's even more because Russell Martin, you know, right now was really good. Grandal has been really good. Posey's been really good. And so those guys, even though they might not all game call great, although Grandal has been this year, they frame so well and then they hit really well and they get all that positional adjustment value that just the value of just purely being a catcher. And by the way, here's one for the advanced listeners. I wonder if, and I, I can't get over this, that since we're suddenly finding all this extra value, and I know it sums out to zero that are we somehow making, do we have to go back and look at positional adjustment again? Because part of the, like the theory there is that you're capturing defensive, you know, the, the value of the position, which is something defensive. It's like just by having that player there are, and measuring these things that previously don't show up in any place outside of the pitcher's line. Do we have to adjust positional adjustments? That seems like it might make sense. And so you've seen some evidence that the average catcher today is is better at framing than the average catcher was five years ago. And you can separate that from umpires and just the way the strike zone is called generally the really bad guys have basically lopped off uh-huh. that's why it, it, the awareness that started when when margie and, and, and mike fast started publishing things and dan turkenkoff even several years ago when teams started recognizing this around 2008 2009 basically when pitch fx came out the really the negative the guys who did really poorly got worse we, we haven't cracked that nut yet in a real analytic way, but anecdotally and just from talking to players and, and looking at how much like, you know, has been invested like in, in coaching on these things, like the Cubs with their machine mm-hmm. that baseball America had a nice little story on that this, that they can actually throw you pitches that are meant to be, okay, throw me this pitch at this location so I can practice receiving it. Mm-hmm. That you know, those things didn't exist. So the skill is getting better. So the rising sea may be there. But from our measurement of it, it's a zero sum game, you know. So and the most extreme mirror seem to have been like just slightly in the rearview mirror. So it, it's it just seems the guys who are bad get better. Some of the older guys do get worse, and the really really bad ones just get chopped off. Do the Dumits and the Santanas that they're not allowed to catch anymore. 
Right. So it's, it's a combination of these things, but there's no longer any question in my mind that the measurement and writing and analysis on this has made a difference to to players, to the coaches and to front offices. It's, it's, it's kind of neat that it's impactful. I mean, that's pretty much the most you can ask for in doing baseball research that is actually having an impact. But it's kind of it's kind of freaky at the same time. All right. Well, I look forward to the continued writing and analysis and digging into this dark matter that we now might know how big it is, but we still don't know exactly what it is. Hopefully we will sometime in the not-too-distant future, and hopefully this will all be on leaderboards that we can sort endlessly. And thanks for coming on to to tell us about it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So Harry is on Twitter at HarryPav. If you have questions about the methodology, you should definitely direct them to him and not to us because we will probably just refer you to him. And you can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. If you want to read this story, you can go to the blog post at BP or go to the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We appreciate your reviews and ratings and subscriptions to the podcast, and we hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday. Go Sonoma. Stomp, stomp, stomp.